Hi guys, come on in, sit down and relax, put in your fancy iPhone earbuds. You're about to listen to Let's Talk Iran and Stuff, a podcast about all things Iran related and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. I'm your host, my name is Reza Marashi. I'm an Iranian American. I'm a lovable jerk. I'm a Words with Friends champion, and most importantly, I'm the research director at the National Iranian American Council. I'm sitting here live in my office in Washington, D.C., and before we go any further, make sure to check out and support NIAC at www.niacouncil.org, and you can also check us out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform of your choosing. This is episode number four of the podcast since our reboot in May. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes yet, you definitely need to check them out. For new listeners, here's a quick refresher course about the mission of this podcast. In my eternal quest to give knowledge to the people, I'm going to hit up as many friends and colleagues as possible to share their expertise with you about all things Iran-related and pretty much anything else I find to be interesting. Like a fine wine, this podcast will only get better with age, so if you keep listening, I'll keep providing you with top-notch content that's free from the typical Washington, D.C. spin. And that's a Reza Marashi promise. This week, my guest is Tim Caldas. He's a fellow at the Tahir Institute for Middle East Policy in Cairo, a visiting professor at Nile University in Cairo, and a professional wedding photographer that you should hire for all of your matrimonial needs. Tim's research focuses on transitional politics in Egypt, regime survival strategies, U.S.-Egypt relations, and many other cool and interesting things. His commentary and analysis has been featured on CNN, the BBC, Al Jazeera, among many other media outlets. In my humble opinion, you won't hear a better explanation from someone who has been on the ground in Egypt for the past eight years. Tim and I talked about what caused the Egyptian uprisings in 2011, what's happened since then, what potentially lies ahead, the many ways in which regional security is a total mess, and how a late 90s rock and roll song sheds light on the problems in present-day Egypt. I think you're going to like it a lot. I think you're going to learn a lot. And much respect to my homie Tim for agreeing to chop it up with me. So, without further ado, enjoy the show. Habibi. Habibi. How are you? Ahlan Beek. Amazing Arabic, my friend. I literally only know one other thing besides what I just You're probably not allowed to say it. No, I can definitely say it. It's I do too. Exactly. Isn't chicken great? It is. And my Arab girlfriend that I had in college who taught me how to say that because she thought it was funny at the time. And then I would just say it to like every Arab I met. And then they thought it was funny. She quickly became annoyed. She immediately regretted that decision. And she immediately regretted the decision of dating me. Right, I was about to say, but I figured I'd let you make that point. Yes, she she regretted regretted many things. But uh, you are here in Washington, D.C., which is a special occasion because you're not here very often. No, that's true. You had roots here. You still have roots here. Yeah, yeah. But but you live in Cairo, my friend. I do, I do. Eight years now. An Egyptian-American man, eight years deep in the game. In Egypt, and I think that in and of itself 
uh, is self-explanatory of why I want you on the podcast. But before we dive into all things related to Egypt and the Middle East and uh, Dijaj and, and it's all, all about the Dijaj, really. Really, really. Well, we call it Farah in, in Egypt, actually. Oh, see, this is this is the problem with learning like modern standard Arabic. It's quite useless. It's quite, exactly. You go to a different country, and they're like, "Why do you talk like a sissy boy?" It's like, "Why are you trying to give me a news broadcast in our conversation?" <laughs> yeah. But before we dive into all of this, uh, you chose a song. You chose uh, "Flagpole Sitta" by Harvey Danger. Yep. So explain to me, why did you choose that song, and what do you like about it? Because you said I had to pick a song. I did. <laughs> and I had no idea what the hell to pick. Uh, so basically, um, I, in, I, in high school, I used this song in a history project about, about communism and McCarthyism. And uh, I've always liked the song. Uh, and it's, uh, in some senses, it also has a little bit of relevance to what's going on in Egypt in terms of paranoia and uh, wanting to kill your mind and a lot of other things of that nature. Uh, there's a lot of paranoia right now in the regime and uh, in how it justifies a lot of its repression and stuff. So it still kind of still kind of rings true to me when I hear it. Uh, it reminds me of some of the things I that like I have that. to deal with. I like that. I mean, so, you know, a lot of times with music, like everybody kind of has their own soundtrack to life, right? And and if you're like me, you probably have pretty eclectic taste in music where you don't just listen to one genre, very one eclectic. thing, right? Yeah. Um, but like, give, give the people an idea. So I, everybody's heard this song, Flagpole Set Up by Harvey Danger. And, and if it doesn't uh, ring true to you, then that means you probably weren't listening to music in the late 90s or early 2000s. But... Uh, Give the people a, a little bit of a taste of, 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 of what, are, what, what are some things that you have uh, in your iTunes that you like or what are some things that you have in, in your CD player that, that you might shuffle through. I mean, I love jazz. So, I mean, some of the classics like Thelonious Monk, nice. uh, Miles Davis, of course, yeah. uh, is a master. Uh, so that, that sort of stuff is, uh, is awesome. Uh, then there's, uh, there's this really kind of strange Tunisian musician called Zafar Youssef. That makes really unusual sounds um, with in his um, in his uh, music uh, with his actual mouth. Like it's not a it's not like a sort of computer synthesized type things. I actually saw him perform at the Library of Congress here. So he's like Bobby McFerrin, where he can make all the noises himself. Basically, yeah. Don't worry, be happy, guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very uh, so he's got a really interesting like flavor uh, in his music. Um, and then there's the stuff like. Old Green Day stuff, uh, yeah. Flag Pulsed, all that stuff. Um, and then you got to have some 90s hip hop and whatnot. Naturally. It's uh, a beautiful thing. It is um, a beautiful thing. That's what we grew up on. Exactly. These are the classics. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of, I don't know, it's a big mix of that sort of thing. Do you have, uh, do you listen to music when you write? Yeah. So what, what you usually, I can't have music with words when I'm writing. I get, otherwise, I'll just want to sing along with the song, and it reminds me of a million other songs. What kind of stuff do you typically listen to? When I actually like really high-paced, fast uh, music when I'm writing. Uh, words are fine; that doesn't distract me really. It just yeah. it's more about like having something intense in the background, kind of give, increases the energy, almost like you would want in like a workout. Okay. But you're listening to like death metal when you're writing. <laughs> not quite that far. I don't want it to scare me. Uh, I don't really ever listen to death metal, to be honest with you. I've never been able to get into that. Yeah. Uh, that's one That's one genre that has not made it into my iTunes library. Tim, Tim has his limits. Yeah, you know, everybody's got it. Everybody has. That's good. Okay. Well, I like it. Eclectic musical taste uh, from soundtrack of, of our youth, like 90s hip hop and Green Day and stuff like that, to soundtrack of everyday life. Uh, and everyday life for you as we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, is in Cairo. And 
you know, some things have been happening in Cairo. Just a few. Over, just a few. Over the past few years. And in a respect, nothing has been happening. <laughs> There's, it's been extraordinarily eventful without much change on some level. Like, it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, contradiction. Yeah. And, and, I mean, this begs the question, right? You've been living there for the past eight years. So you can provide a unique perspective on how the political, economic, and social status quo has formed and reformed over time. So let's unpack it. Like explain to the people how conditions under Mubarak's rule led to the uprising in 2011, and then walk us through what's been going on from 2011 until today. All right, well, <clears throat> I mean, under Mubarak, you had uh, a growing gap between the wealthy and the uh, and the the rest of the population. So uh, common in the Middle East. Pretty standard in in almost any developing economy. You kind with the liberalization policies that come into effect. There's a handful of people that really benefit dramatically and gain access to all this capital and wealth, um, and then the rest of the population kind of falls behind. And while the wealthy people are making all this money, the cost of living is rising and wages are stagnant. So there's a lot of frustration. Um, Government uh, services were basically uh, worthless. I mean, the hospitals were more dangerous than the diseases sometimes. The school Man. system, the public school system was pretty much uh, totally ineffective. It's considered one of the worst in the world, actually. Jesus. Um, things kind of were left to disrepair. The electrical infrastructure was uh, in a terrible state, which is part of the reason why we had so many power outages uh, after the uprisings. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of, like, frustration. On top of that, there's a lot of police repression. The police used to harass uh, particularly people in uh, poor neighborhoods. Uh, they'd basically shake them down for money and, you know, threaten them with arrest and stuff. Um, and so you had a lot of different issues, a lot of problems where not only are people struggling, but then the government's making their lives even more difficult than they otherwise need it to be. Right. Um, and there was just kind of a sense that they didn't care, that the government wasn't concerned with normal people, and they were just increasingly isolating themselves in compounds and beach towns and whatnot, um, and had kind of checked out. It's probably a fair assessment. I think so. Um, so while all that's happening, um, you've you had a really big police brutality incident. Uh, I mean, you've had protest a protest movement that started really back in like even 2003 and five with the Iraq War, and then with Mubarak uh, running for president again. Um, you had the first multi-candidate election, um, and but it was also kind of rigged. I mean, basically, they didn't announce it was going to be multiple candidates until uh, after registration was closed. Well, so if you had wanted to register to vote <laughs> for anyone besides Mubarak, it was too late. By the time you found out there were any other options besides Mubarak, so it was kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, just a little. Yeah, so you have that, and then you follow into like these police brutality incidents that are. Con Increasingly, uh, increasingly um, getting a lot of play in social media as Facebook increases its penetration in society. Right. And these videos are being shared through mobile phones and through uh, social media. And you have this guy, Khaled Saeed, who gets uh, beaten to death by the police in Alexandria. I remember that. And that really, like, seeing a picture of this, like, you know, like, handsome young guy, uh, and then next to that, a photo of his, like, totally brutalized uh, and maimed face... Uh, after he was killed, really kind of uh, struck a chord with a lot of people. And so you got a protest movement against police brutality kind of built around that uh, particular incident, and that escalated. And then the, the uprising in Tunisia that toppled Ben Ali inspired people to really uh, turn out for a protest that had already been planned against police brutality 
on January 25th, and then the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Sorry, that was a little, kind of long timeline of. No, uh, but that's an important timeline because people don't oftentimes understand or, or don't really think about. It. Never mind, understand. Let's not let's not give people more credit than they deserve. Um, a lot of people don't think through, like, oh, it, it's not just people just showing up on the street one day saying, you know what, enough is enough. These things have a propensity to build over time. Absolutely. And, and there is a sequence of events, and and it kind of becomes a critical mass. Uh, and then a whole another separate question. Um, you know, does the situation become uh, revolutionary? Does it become counter-revolutionary, et cetera, et cetera? Which is a segue into my next question. So, okay, uh, we understand what happens up until 2011. And then, and then 2011 happens, yeah. right? Um, Mubarak is essentially forced to step down. Uh, and then walk us through what happens from when Mubarak is forced to step down. People are celebrating in Tahrir. And then from that point until today. <laughs> Give knowledge to the people. People. Um, basically, so Mubarak uh, is toppled uh, in February 2011. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Council for the Armed Forces, SCAF, takes over. Um, and just for people to understand, since 1952, it's been a military dictatorship. Uh, so the military taking over after the fall of Mubarak is kind of consistent with that. So the idea that this is a revolution that leaves the backbone of the regime intact and in control is a little bit complicated and problematic, uh, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Yeah, uh, so military takes direct control of the state. Um, they're trying to negotiate with lots of different parties. There's so many different groups claiming to represent the revolution. The thing about a leaderless revolution is that after you succeed in toppling the uh, dictator, it's difficult to coordinate, it's difficult to uh, organize, and of course the military is trying to find someone they can cut a deal with that works in their favor. In comes the Brotherhood. Uh, they're an organized group. They have a coordinated leadership. Uh, they can control their rank and file, um, and they and they represent you know not a small number of people. Um, so the military kind of cut a deal with them. We go into parliamentary elections. The Brotherhood takes nearly half the seats. The Salafis, uh, which are even more conservative uh, Islamists, take nearly a quarter of the seats, and what's left is to a mix of independents. Uh, so-called liberals and leftists and whatnot that, uh, and some revolutionary activists and just a bunch of different smaller uh, contingents in the uh, parliament, but not really uh, a group that can can affect change because the there's... Seafood gumbo of Egyptian politicians all coming together in the parliament. Delicious gumbo, delicious though. Gumbo. Um, so there, so all these different groups kind of enter parliament in 2011 in the fall. Yeah. Um, and that, and the, the parliamentary elections happen immediately after the clashes in Mohammed Mahmoud, which were like a, a really big incident of, uh, more police brutality. There were police that were actually gunning for protesters' eyes and actually a bunch of protesters lost eyes in the, uh, clashes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there was this huge incident of violence and some people had called for a delay of the, the elections. The Brotherhood was like, no, absolutely not. We need to do this now. They knew that they were primed to do really well, um, and they did. So elections happen. Uh, the parliament is a bit of a mess, unsurprisingly. Um, and uh, the Brotherhood kind of controls the, I mean, they, they, they control the, uh, the, that, the, the lower house there. Um, <clears throat> then we go into 2012. We're getting ready for presidential elections. There's a bunch of different candidates running. Um, there's a leftist guy, Hamdin Sabahi, 
there's uh, an old school like Egyptian diplomat who used to run the Arab League, Amr Musa. Uh, there's like a moderate Islamist, uh, Abdul Minam Abdul Fatuh, who had left the Brotherhood because he wanted to run for president of the Brotherhood. It said no one is going to run for president, but he said he was going to run anyways. And then ironically, the Brotherhood decided to run for president. Uh, eventually with the candidate Morsi. The thing is, the Brotherhood, when they initially, when, 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 when 2011 happened, they said they were going to run for parliament, take no more than one-third of the seats, and not run for president the first time around, which was a really smart strategy that they very stupidly did not stick to. Yeah. So, I mean, for clarity, the presidency of Egypt in 2012 was a totally po poison chalice. Like, there was no way... That anyone, I mean, if God had been president of Egypt in 2012, the country would have turned to atheism. Like, there's just no way <laughs> that anyone could have performed yeah. um, to the satisfaction of what people expected. We had neither the resources materially nor the organization to do it. The state was in a mess. There were so many different problems. Um, and... The president is just one person facing a, a gargantuan bureaucracy that is... Uh, that has basically been growing and growing and growing aimlessly for decades. Yeah. Uh, we just keep adding people to the bureaucracy as almost a form of welfare. So to kind of row against all of that is a huge task that no one was going to be able to do in an efficient or quick way. And people expected radical change after the fall of Mubarak. And even if parliament holds 95% of the power, which it didn't, but even if it had, people would still blame the president because they're accustomed to the idea that the president is responsible and the parliament is seen as kind of a weak rubber stamp usually, right. historically. So they're not even used to the idea of seeing a parliament as an uh, effective governing body. Um, so, it was a, so the presidency is not something you really wanted in 2012, in my opinion. But the Brotherhood got, it, got ambitious, got it, uh, and uh, started to you know, get a little too uh, full of themselves. And so they pursued the presidency. And um, there was also a guy who was the former prime minister under Mubarak, uh, Ahmed Shafiq, kind of representing the military establishment. He was running. And in the first round, it, Morsi came in first, the Brotherhood candidate, then Shafiq, the, uh, the old regime candidate. Um, Hamdin Sabahi, the leftist guy, came in third. Um, but the, the, uh, the runoff election goes to the top two. So basically, the people were forced to choose between the Brotherhood or the former regime for president, which put a lot of people in a really difficult situation. Yeah. So if you're not an Islamist, but you hate the former regime, you, it's difficult to see who you're going to vote for. And some people decided that they were going to vote for the Brotherhood on the principle that they can't bring themselves to support the former regime. We didn't do all this so that they would come back to power so quickly. Um, people had died because of these guys. Ahmed Shafi was part of the government that was repressing the population in 2011. It's completely untenable to support these guys. But other people were like, the Brotherhood is scarier to me. So they went and voted for Shafi. Um, I have an atheist friend that voted for Morsi. I yeah. mean, just on the, on the principle of, uh, of displacing the regime. Why did some people think that the Brotherhood, why did Egyptians in Egypt, I know what the Western narrative was on the Brotherhood, but why were Egyptians in Egypt, some Egyptians in Egypt, more scared of the Brotherhood at that time? Um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so, first of all, like, a lot of people weren't comfortable with it being kind of a secretive organization. Um, true. Yeah, there's not a lot, there wasn't a lot of transparency in the, uh, in the structure. Um, there was a lot of uh, talk about how they were receiving funds from abroad and part of this kind of internationalist Islamist movement. So they weren't, like, necessarily Egyptian nationalists. There was some people who believed that. 
Um, There's also a class element to it. Wealthier people kind of looked down on them in a lot of instances, uh, saw them as kind of backwards. A lot of like inappropriate comments about the way that Morsi's wife dressed were made by uh, wealthier Egyptians because she wore kind of like a longer traditional headscarf as opposed to like the, the type that's more in style with the wealthier um, right, right, right. Kyrene elite. Um, and then uh, so th- those are some issues. Uh, obviously, if you're if you're not Muslim, ten uh, percent of the population is Christian. The idea of voting for an Islamist government is pretty uh, pretty unappealing. Yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of Iranians can relate to that. Yeah, um, uh, so those are those are some of the issues that would uh, affect a voter's decision to worry about the Brotherhood from a pretty early stage. But the election happens, and he wins. He does by uh, by a small margin. Yes. Yeah, and then he wins, and then all hell kind of breaks loose. Not initially. Not initially? No. Okay, so walk us through. So he wins. Well, one thing that happened very quickly that was a big problem was the judiciary disbanded the parliament saying that the elections were unconstitutional the way they were conducted. Huh. So that was a big problem. So basically, you have a brotherhood president with no parliament um, to work with. So he's kind of ruling by decree by virtue of the fact that they got rid of the legislature. and And then there was a a lot of difficulty in coming up with an electoral law that satisfied the, the Supreme Court. Yeah. There was a lot of back and forth about that. Um, and we ended up not having a parliamentary election again until Morrissey was overthrown. Um, part of that is because the Brotherhood weren't that rushed to pro- uh, produce a satisfactory uh, parliamentary law. Part of it was the court was deliberately like uh, difficult to deal with. And part of it was that a lot of the political parties increasingly moved in the direction of just wanting to boycott if there was a parliamentary election and said they would. The National Salvation Front in the spring of 2013 announced that they would not be participating in a parliamentary election that had been planned, um, that they were going to boycott. This is something that I personally opposed uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, But uh, before that, before we got to that point, uh, Morsi had a constitutional committee to write the Constitution because we still had to do that. Uh, The Constitution gets written. There's some controversial sections. Uh, protests break out against the Constitution that he wrote in front of the presidential palace. There's a lot of clashes. Um, some Brotherhood uh, supporters beat up some protesters. Some, uh, some of them get dragged into the presidential palace and beat up and even uh, tortured. Uh, there's a, well, that's one of the many, many cases that Morsi got um, tried on after he was removed from office. Um, it, was a, it was a pretty nasty couple of weeks. Um, and the problem was, though, in my opinion, that they spent so much time protesting uh, the, con- the new constitution at the presidential palace and not organizing votes against it, that when the referendum went forward, they lost. And they lost in, in the first, so it was fa- two phases, depending on which part of Egypt you lived in. In the first phase, which included Cairo, it was really close, actually. And that's not normal. Referendums, I mean, in Egypt, Egyptians have never rejected a referendum in the history of having referendums. Like, they just always pass. So <laughs> for it to even be close is quite remarkable. Yeah. If, so, but that, always, that also makes me feel like if they had been able to organize a stronger no vote, because it was very unclear what the opposition supported. Did they support a boycott? Did they support a no vote? And they only at the very last minute really mobilized for that no. And it was a, a bit too little too late at that point. Right. So Constitution passes, um, and uh, at the same time, you've got, like, so the Constitution enshrined in it, it has 
special privileges for the military, for the police. Um, and it, it became increasingly clear that the strategy of the Brotherhood was they'd rather co-opt the security apparatus and win them over to their side rather than actually confront and reform uh, the security apparatus, which is one of the key demands of the revolution is to is to reform the police and the interior ministry that have been engaged in so much abuse against the population. Right. So their commitment to that cause came into question. At one point, a report about police abuse came out, um, and Morsi said that, like, he he read it, it's very damning, but he's not going to publish it for the public, um, which, again, kind of leads one to question his loyalty to any of the principles behind the revolution. Right. Um, the Brotherhood was in deal-making mode, and it wasn't making deals with the population. It was making deals with the other institutions of power from the previous regime. Um, and that was a f- major frustration for the revolutionaries uh, during his tenure, um, which is why a lot of them came out on June 30th, actually, apo- uh, supporting his overthrow again. Um, and so that was part of the problem. Um, and then beyond that... <coughs> You had incidences of crackdown on protests uh, in Port Said, for example. Um, you had, I mean, you, you didn't really see the kind of progress you would want. The, the thing is, and they also kind of were rather incompetent in governing. I mean, that's a big one. That's a pretty big one. They, I used to joke, you spent 80 years trying to get into power and you didn't spend a weekend trying to figure out what you'd do with it. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it's quite remarkable yeah. how little they managed to accomplish. Uh, they had no. They didn't seem to have a really clear agenda going forward, except to like position their people in different uh, uh, posts of power. Um, but there wasn't really much in terms of policy making or uh, reform or really moving the country forward in any sort of way. And then they kept appointing absurd people. So, like towards the end of Morsi's tenure, he appointed for governor of Luxor uh, a guy from Il Gamal Islamia, which is the group that massacred a bunch of tourists in the 90s in Luxor at Karnak at the temple. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. It's an exceptionally stupid idea. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, there's huge backlash. Uh, the guy didn't make it two weeks. He had to resign. Um, and that's, for me, that's an important difference, though, between Morsi and what comes after Morsi. The Brotherhood has authoritarian tendencies. They torture people in the presidential palace. They're they're not good Democrats. They're not good at like dealing with other groups. Um, Morsi, when he came into office, had promised a big coalition uh, in government. Didn't happen. Um, he uh, basically he broke a lot of his promises very early into his tenure. Um, so all of that's problematic. But at the same time, the difference is he's weak. So he does something stupid like appoint a terrorist to be the governor of a state and the population uh, pushes back and he has to get rid of that guy. Whereas today when the government does something stupid and the population pushes back, the population goes to jail or the population gets killed. Right. I mean, it's a very different dynamic. Um, there's the, the Brotherhood wasn't in the position to repress in the way that the current uh, government isn't able to. Um, and that doesn't mean that they didn't try sometimes. Like, they brought in Bassett Yusuf for questioning for insulting the president. Like, there were cases like that. But Bassett Yusuf continued to, 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 to run his show uh, and satirize and mock the president on a regular basis. Um, at one point, he, they, so the Brotherhood had this program called El Nahda, like the, the Renaissance. And they're like, this is what we're going to do to save Egypt. And uh, Bassett Yusuf at one point called it Kulot El Nahda. 
uh, Kulotis, like the panties. So the panties <laughs> of Renaissance, like he was just completely mocking in a very crude way on TV, this, uh, the president and his agenda and stuff like that. And he, he, he got away with it at the end. He was threatened, but not in comparison to getting taken off the air. Uh, I mean, his show was canceled basically immediately upon CeCe's election. So it's very, there's a different quality to the repression, different efficacy to the repression that we see coming uh, out of 2013. And so what do you think were the, the forces or the combination of forces that led to what was, at least as an outsider looking in, an extremely violent, an extremely, uh, oh God, I mean, just, the, just the, the, I can't remember if it was videos or pictures or both, of, of, of Brotherhood supporters get, just getting clipped in the streets, just getting gunned down. I mean, it, it was wild to me. So, so Morsi is overthrown. He's put in prison. Yep. Um, Brotherhood supporters are protesting this, and then uh, one fateful day, what was it, summer of 2013? August 14th, okay. yeah. 2013. So w w what led to that? A number of things. Um, so... I mean, unsurprisingly, when you have a counter-revolution, it's usually pretty violent. Right. Um, and so what happens is Morsi gets overthrown uh, in the coup on July 3rd, 2013. Um, and then a bunch of civilian opposition groups join the military in creating this government. Um, and they try to recruit, you know, people that seem to have some sort of credibility, like Mohammed al-Baradai. And he becomes vice president, vice president for foreign affairs, which is a nonsense position. Basically, his job <laughs> was to say in English, it wasn't a coup. That was literally, that was, I think, his, the entire purpose of his existence as far as the rest of the government was concerned. Yeah. Vice president for foreign affairs. He's not the foreign minister. He's not the vice president. He's just this guy that does this, that goes on tour telling the media it's not a coup and it's okay that we close all these news outlets that are Islamist and newspapers that are Islamist. Don't worry about it. Um, that was his job. From his perspective, his main goal was to try to prevent uh, the counter-revolution from turning violent against the Brotherhood. And he was insisting that they not clear the protests of the Brotherhood that you mentioned with force. Um, and pretty early into it, there were a couple of really violent instances where dozens of, of Brotherhood protesters were killed uh, in clashes with the military, uh, where live ammunition was used. The military, both times, uh, during both of those incidents, had claimed that the Brotherhood members had weapons among them. Um, it's difficult to verify, but even if there were, it was definitely... There was definitely a lot of a lack of proportionality in the response. Right, right, right. Going into Rabat, there were all sorts of rumors about Rabat. This is the main protest site for the Brotherhood. Uh, there were rumors that people were being detained and tortured under the stage. There were uh, a lot of people in the neighborhood were really annoyed because they had shut down basically this set, this set, very busy part of Cairo. Um, they uh, there was uh, rumors about them like gathering arms there, and the thing is though. And they, then they told everyone they have to leave. But at, when you get to the point of the actual like day where they're going to clear the clear Rabat um, they the the reports that came out from Human Rights Watch and even from the Egyptian government 
showed that they kind of blocked the way out while telling people to leave. And they go in with the full fury of, uh, of uh, their force and kill roughly a thousand people oh in one, in six hours, really, six to eight hours. Um, and uh, during that, you, uh, so you get this massive massacre, uh, unprecedented in Egyptian history, unprecedented, honestly, in world history. The Amnesty International, or was it, no, it was a Human Rights Watch, uh, estimated that it, was, it might have even been larger than the Tiananmen Square massacre. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was a huge crime against humanity that was committed on that day. Um, and, uh, and so there's this, there's this massacre that takes place. Butterdai resigns and leaves the country pretty soon after that. People get really mad that he's, like, abandoning Egypt in this difficult time. And he's like, it's really straightforward. People were basically mad at him that, unlike most Egyptian politicians, he kept his word. He <laughs> said, if you clear this protest using force, I will leave. And they did. So he did. I mean, it's really not that complicated. <laughs> but people get really mad about it. And I'm like, this yeah. is, is – it's unusually consistent. I know. It's confusing. We don't – we're not accustomed to that sort of thing. <laughs> Politician says something, does it. It's strange. He's clearly been out of Egypt for too long. Exactly. That <laughs> yeah. guy is spending too much time in Geneva. Yeah, that's right. That time went to his head. Went to his head. So, like – but overall, I mean, the government came up with the most absurd justifications for this uh, uh, use of violence – um, they said that it's, there's an international standard of 10% casualties in clearing a protest, which is completely nonsense. They just, they just invented this figure. They expected officially, like when you go back and look at their estimates, they expected to kill triple the number of people they killed. They were, and then they wanted credit for only killing 1,000 people, not three. Jesus. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, that level of brutality. And there was, unfortunately, there was a really scary thirst for blood in the country during that time. Aha, the population was like whipped into a frenzy after the coup. Uh, all of a sudden, the Brotherhood went from like bumbling, incompetent, authoritarian uh, idiots to a terrorist organization in the media. It was a very quick transition. They're terrorists. That's why we have to fight them. Can negotiate with terrorists. The basically the global war on terrorism discourse comes to Egypt and is deployed against the Brotherhood um, in force. And so you see that happen, um, and so it made it very easy for the government to justify um, this violence. And they were very confident that they wouldn't get any pushback for it. And they were right. Um, I mean, on TV, a private TV channel was playing uh, clips of the, of the clearing of Rabbah with the soundtrack of the Ro of Rocky in the background. My God. Like, not, that's not funny, but it's funny. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's funny in, like, oh. the most horrible, tragic yeah. way. Like, my God, <clears throat> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was ridiculous. So you're sitting there watching this, and, I mean, I'd never so, so seriously thought about leaving permanently after that, uh, compared to that moment. Like, because... I mean, I'm used to the political mess. I'm used to the incompetence. I'm used to, like, the, you know... The one step forward, two steps back, all that I can deal with. But seeing the population, like a large section of the population, want to kill another section of the population, that was profoundly troubling for me. You know, this is a particularly interesting part <coughs> of, of Egypt's recent story, uh, at least to me, because at this time, a, there were a lot of Iranians and Iranian Americans, particularly Iranians outside of Iran. Who were excited about it. Yeah, saying, man... If only we could if do that. If only we had done that same thing right. back in 1979. And look, on, on, on one hand, like I get it. I, I, 
I'm no fan of religion myself, <laughs> full disclosure. And that's not a Nyack position, by the way. That's a Reza Marashi position. It's okay. It's a Tim position as well. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also not a fan of gunning down people who you disagree with ideologically. And so... That's a very radical position you take. very radical position to take. And so even like born and raised in the United States, Iranian-Americans who are super progressive in terms of their domestic politics and their foreign policy preferences here in the United States were telling me, you don't want the Brotherhood running Egypt. Like there was only one way to get rid of these guys and, and, and they did what they had to do. And I was like, I promise you that this is the worst decision that has been made since 2011 and it will come back to haunt this country for eons. Now, Am I right? Was I right or was I wrong? Because you were there. So explain. I mean, I think it was a terrible decision. I I, I made a point of just kind of when June 30th happened, when the protests that led to the coup took place, I I stayed home. I made a lot of snarky comments on social media, which was extremely productive, I'm sure. Very therapeutic. Uh, It felt good. (laughs) Drank probably more whiskey than I should have. And that was kind of that was how I dealt with it. Um, I thought it was a really stupid idea. And it's funny, one of my roommates at the time, he went out for the protests on the first day on June 30th. And I was like, this is just going to be a coup. Don't support this. And he's like, no, 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 it's different. It's complicated, blah, blah, blah. He goes, he comes back that evening. He's like, Tim, it's a coup. I'm like, I know. I told you. <laughs> Here, have a drink. Let me <laughs> welcome to the show. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's funny. Like, it's sad, but it's, it's, it's funny, like, how... I'm always surprised at how many relative, rather smart people didn't foresee this outcome. Yeah. That didn't foresee that you know, a a protest that was largely orchestrated and supported and facilitated by the military and police went badly. Like, how is that really that surprising? <laughs> yeah. And like, I feel people continue to lose sight of their number one threat to an actual revolution in Egypt, which is the security apparatus in the military. I mean, I remember even back in 2011, uh, on January 28th, when the military was deployed into the streets because the police had failed to uh, to uh, control the protests, I was standing on a bridge and the military deployed and people were chanting, the people of the army are one head. That's frightening. And... I was sitting there and I'm like, do you understand? And just a moment ago, they had been saying the people want to follow the regime. I'm like, do you know what the regime is? Yeah. So how- and the failure to identify the regime from 2011 through 2013 and to some extent to this day, I think is really problematic. The, 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 fundament, the regime is not a figurehead. The regime is not Mubarak. Mubarak was the leader of the regime. He was the, the, the head of the regime. But that doesn't mean that he represents the system yeah. that repressed the population and exploited it. That's right. And the military is the backbone of that regime. And it always has been. And it always will be. Uh, as long as it's there. Yeah, so long as this regime is in place, they are the fundamental ish- point. I mean, there are other centers of power, don't misunderstand me. It's no a complicated question. picture. But, like, at its core, uh, the military is the most powerful institution in the country. And has capacity. been from, since 1952. Um, and the thing that's, that's, um, that's funny is, like, before the uprising, before all this happened, people were speculating that uh, Mubarak's son was going to become president of Egypt, Gamal. I remember this. And people would ask me, do you think that could happen? I'm like, it really just depends on how the officers react. I wasn't, I wasn't concerned what the population reaction would be. I wasn't concerned about like, the, how the markets were going to react. My con- question was, will the military officers allow a non-military officer to become president of Egypt? Because we hadn't had that yet. Right. Um, 
And that speaks to the fact that everyone kind of understood them to be, because it wasn't just me saying that, lots of analysts were saying that. And we, it just, we all understood that fundamentally the core of power in Egypt rested with the military and continues to rest with the military. Um, and so trusting them to deliver reform and revolution is, is absurd, frankly. Yeah. Um, and some people would say, no, this is just a step and it's a process. And but realistically, it's a step backwards. The Brotherhood was just a much easier target to compete with politically. Um, and it's very unfortunate that we put ourselves in this, this untenable position that we're in now. So how, explain to, explain to the people, and frankly, explain to me, how did we go from a situation in Egypt where everybody was like, uh, F the military, F Mubarak, you know, like fully cognizant of what their, what was the there actually There were actually were t-shirts that said F SCAF. <laughs> they, why did we, this is, this is what the gift you should be bringing me. I, I should. I don't, okay. e I don't even have one. I regret not having bought one. Yeah. I remember I went to a stand-up comedy show that Bess Musev was uh, emceeing and he was wearing the t-shirt during the... Uh, Isn't that kind of ironic? Because didn't he come out then in support of the coup and... Came out in support of coup. This is much earlier. This oh, is earlier. this is like 2011. Yeah, and I'm not knocking him because I mean, or 2012. I, I, I by all accounts, he's a very nice guy. But it's just so. But again, this 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 goes to my central point. You had all different kinds of people from all different walks of life in Egypt saying, you know, military equals bad, Mubarak equals bad, and then. But never the majority. But, but never the majority. So the majority so, has look. The military is by far the most popular institution in the country. It seems the most capable institution in the country. It seems the most effective institution in the country. It's seen as this patriotic institution that protects the country, um, and part of that is based on a mythology that the that the government has promoted for decades. Um, there's this idea that Egypt won the '73 war, for example, really? which is news to any military historian that you would meet. Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know how you win a war while your while one of your armies is surrounded in Sinai and the and uh, the enemy is 100 kilometers from your capital. But <laughs> call that victory. Uh, so there, there's this, and there's a whole museum uh, built about how we won the war, and it's built by the North Koreans, of course. Uh, oh, I'm sure generous really contribution, generous contribution. <laughs> yeah. um, so it gives you an idea what kind of quality propaganda we're talking about here. Yes, um, so, but no, in in general, I mean. The people have been taught from a very young age that the military is uh, is is a bulwark against all threats against Egypt, um, and the military has been very smart about delegating repression. So yes, they are the core of power, and at the same time, they let the police do the dirty work. Right. So people's interactions with the state that are negative are primarily through the police and the interior ministry. They don't, so, so they could hate the police, for example, during the uprising in 2011 and see the military as their savior. Um, when in fact, they're, I mean, they're coordinating. They might have some disagreements, there might be some tension, but overall, the police's brutality is facilitating the military's rule. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's essential to recognize that. Um, some people do, some people don't. Um, but it's a very important point. Um, so there's, so that's one issue. Um, and then beyond that, because of conscription, every family has had someone in the military. Like, so like there's this uh, expression, so like the military is of the people. And that's true because our criticism isn't of like the rank and file soldier in the military. We're not against the enlisted man. Yeah, they're not monolithic. 
No, it's about the the leadership. It's about that officer corps that that you know is so well taken care of, uh, and they their their control of the of a large section of the economy is, is remarkable. They this is a military that produces refrigerators, uh, has construction companies, um, produces really bad macaroni, <laughs> bottled water, uh, some of which is also terrible. Some of it's not bad. Depends which brand you go with. Uh, there's. <laughs> they th- like they have all sorts of industries that they're that they're participating in, and that actually complicates economic growth in Egypt because they don't pay taxes and they don't always pay their workers. Right, because they have conscripts that do some of the labor. Um, and so, if you're in the private sector and you have to like actually play by the rules that are set by the government, uh, it's it's much more costly. Yeah, how so how do you compete on price with a with an institution that isn't competing fairly? Yeah. Um, so it deters people from participating in sections of the economy that that the military has. Um, and they also, I mean, the the biggest source of wealth for the the military is land. They own and control huge swaths of land throughout Egypt, um, and they have hotels. Resorts, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's man, doesn't sound that different than Iran. <laughs> the Arabs and Persians, we're not so different. We can all get along. We're not so different. We can all be corrupt together. Yes, we, yeah, yeah, we can. And we can even bring the Israelis in on that one. That everyone's one big corrupt party. Everyone just can, you know, it's a threesome of inappropriateness. It's, it's exactly what it is. So okay, so it, it wasn't so much a anti-military thing, but I, I just. So, wh- there were some people who were very anti-SCAF for a while because they put them because right after 2011 when they when the uprising happened right, right after the, uh, the the fall of Mubarak, SCAF put itself at the forefront. They the officers in uniform were directly ruling the country, right. so they they didn't have the veneer of delegating repression to other people that they had enjoyed before, which resulted in a lot of blowback against the military and. The, their popularity definitely went down during that time. It didn't. They didn't lose the majority. Okay. That never happened. But they definitely lost a lot of people, uh, which is why it wasn't bad for them that the Brotherhood took the presidency and could kind of take uh, the blame for the, the situation. Yeah, and then the, yeah, and then people just kind of. I don't know if, if, if people turned is, is is the right way to describe it, but people. Uh, I, there, there's always a scapegoat in any kind of post-revolutionary situation. Right, um, we as Iranians certainly know that. I think Egyptians are living with the consequences of it today. But so we talked about kind of you. You walked me and you walked the people through 2011, pretty much up until the present day. I like to lead the people to wherever they need to go. Well, the people now need to go, and they need to know what's going on in Egypt right now. Explain what the status quo is right now, and explain whether or not the status quo is tenable. Okay. So following the coup, we had an interim president who was the head of the judiciary, uh, the head of the Supreme Court. Um, and then we had presidential elections uh, about two years ago. Uh, CC won 97% of the vote. Very Assad-esque. <laughs> the funny thing is, I don't doubt that he got 97% of the vote. I think it's really more of an issue of, see, this thing is you don't have to rig an election by stuffing the ballot box. You can rig the context. So what happens in Egypt is he's made to be seen as inevitable. There are no other options. No one else is in position to save the country. Everyone's like, well, if it's not CC, then who would it be? Um, and people who didn't want CC to win knew he was going to win anyway, so a lot of them just didn't bother voting. Ah. So you, you demoralize your opposition. You convince the population they have no choice, and they'll produce the result that you want without you having to actually cheat I mean, there's no point in CC 
I mean, if CC got 85%, it would have been better for him because it would have been slightly like more less absurd. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bassett Music gets taken off the air the minute CC went, or he was off the air before uh, CC went on break so that he would affect the presidential elections. That was the official justification. He's like, I don't want to affect the political outcome. That was the like official like reason that they didn't have him on the air for like a month before the elections. And then he gets elected, and immediately the show is canceled. Um, and like the thing is, ninety-seven percent is a punchline by itself. Yeah. I, I remember right after uh, it happened, John Stewart just mentioned and the president of Egypt has won by 95% of the vote and everyone just starts laughing. Like it's, you don't need a joke. <laughs> yeah, it is, the it joke. is a joke. Yeah. Um, and there's something fundamentally problematic when a result like that is possible. So even if you don't stop the ballot box, it's still concerning. So that's one thing. So CC comes to power um, and the repression continues. Um, lots of activists are thrown in jail, given very uh, heavy sentences. The, before CC even came to power um, officially, I mean, when he was just the Minister of Defense after the coup uh, and the uh, head of the Supreme Court, Adli Mansour, was the president, a protest law was passed that basically had very uh, draconian punishments, three to five years for, like, participation in illegal protests. And then... Wow. Um, and they and went on and on from there, uh, and lots and lots of people got uh, thrown in jail for like holding a, a a sign in front of a building. I mean, it was it was outrageous. Um, among them, a friend of mine. Um, she's just recently gotten out. Um, so you have this uh, this crackdown on any sort of protest, and it's not just Islamists. They went after like secular youth. They went after leftists. They've gone after workers. They've gone after all sorts of groups. Anyone that ch that challenges or criticizes the government is at risk. Um, and so at the same time, you have this problem of, I mean, why, look, why is transparency and accountability important? Why are elections important? It's not because, you know, they're nice and there's like, it's just the ethical way to do things. No, there's practical reasons why we have these things. Absolutely. Without them, a mistake becomes a disaster, right? So CC, let's say he's the most well-intentioned military dictator in the world. <laughs> um, he's going to make mistakes by virtue of the fact that he's a human being. He has limited knowledge like anybody else would. I would make mistakes if I was president of Egypt. That's normal. The difference is when he makes a mistake and there's no mechanism of accountability to correct the mistake, that mistake eventually will grow and fester into a catastrophe. Yeah. And so what we have right now economically in Egypt is a catastrophe. Um, there's been all this spending on unnecessary things. We're buying, we're buying French fighter jets that nobody wanted. We're buying uh, helicopter carrier ships that we have no use for. We expanded the Suez Canal even though it uh, was nowhere near capacity already for traffic. And we did it in th one year instead of the, the, uh, the supposed three at an additional cost to the, uh, the government. Uh, we've borrowed all this money. The external debt of the country is exploding. The internal debt of the country is exploding. Um, there's a there's a currency crisis. The tourism industry is in free fall because of a bunch of security lapses. Some they're under their control, some not. Uh, and the repression uh, against uh, ISIS in Sinai is being conducted in a way that uh, alienates much of the population living in Sinai. And so it creates a, a context in which ISIS can flourish. Um, and you see the the number of attacks continue to grow every year and get bigger and bigger and That's right. higher and higher. Yeah. And the situation is just getting out of control. So so CC comes into office promising us stability, promising us promising us security, 
promising us economic growth, and he's failing on all these counts. He's not delivering what he promised. And increasingly, the honeymoon is over. The population, I mean, I'm not saying that he's lost the majority yet, but he's certainly far, far away from the 97%. He's far away from his heyday when he was kind of seen as this like amazing hero and gift from God, which he also likes to describe himself as. <laughs> what, what good leader does it? <laughs> it, was, it's, it he, he, he does have a bit of a narcissism problem. But, yeah. um, but the population is increasingly seeing that their day-to-day their, their, uh, their -day situation is deteriorating. Um, the government's spending all this money that's just not going to them, and they're frustrated. I mean, I remember when, uh, when Sisi was talking up his trip to the UK, um, uh, before he got there, uh, I was asking people, like, what do you think about it? And they're like, am I going to eat his trip to the UK? I don't know. What, what was the point of this? Exactly. And I got the same reaction about the canal. Some people were really excited about it. And other people were like, I don't really see how this is going to get me a job. I hope it helps. Um, but I don't understand. And and it, and, if, and actually, the, the, the irony is that in the year since the canal was expanded, revenue has actually declined as, instead of increased. Now, that's not the expansion's fault. That's the nature of the global economy. Price of oil has dropped, so it's actually cheaper to sail around the Cape of Good Hope than pay the toll fees for the canal. Uh -huh. there, are, there are external reasons why that happened, but it demonstrates the lack of necessity for this expansion yeah. at this time. Yeah, yeah. It was a waste of money at a time we didn't have money. Um, and the currency looks like it's about to be devalued again. The central bank governor just said that it had been a mistake to protect the pound, and now it looks like he wants to float it. Uh, and they've already got a double-digit inflation problem, and this is only going to exacerbate that. I mean, there's just so many things. Oh, and police brutality is totally out of control. You had a cop shoot a guy because he charged him too much for tea. Uh, you had another cop shoot a tuk-tuk driver. Uh, it's like a little, like, cart thing. Uh, you have... All these little incidents, you have people getting tortured to death in police stations almost on a weekly basis now. My God. I mean, people talk about Giulio Regini because he's Italian, but I mean, his experience is not unique. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people have died in police stations due to brutality and attacks. And even the government's own National Council of Human Rights recently issued a report complaining about uh, abuse in police stations and prisons. Uh, and this is, the, this is a government entity recognizing this problem. Yeah. So. It's uh, so the police repression hasn't hasn't uh, stopped. If anything, it's back with a vengeance since the coup. Uh, I mean, so day to day life is quite difficult, and the cost of living is exploding, exploding. Because not only do you have a devaluation in the pound, you have speculation that there will be more devaluation. So people are pricing for the speculation. Yeah. Like for example, I just bought glasses in in Cairo uh, right before I came a couple weeks ago, and I went to the same store I went to two years ago. The cost of the lenses for my glasses tripled. Tripled? Tripled in Egyptian pounds, um, which is insane. Yeah, that would be frankly. exactly what that is. Um, in, and the thing is, that it's not like the pound declined in value by, you know, to one third of its previous value. It, it's about half of its previous value. The other, the, so, it, it, so that would justify a 100% increase. But the 200% increase is because after the 100%, they're, they're hedging their bets and speculating another another step beyond that. So the price of so many different goods is being affected in a similar way. The cost of uh, buying an automobile has exploded to the point where used cars are increasing in value. Used cars are actually 
in some instances worth more than they were when they were new. <laughs> uh, it's a great investment. Yeah, yeah. When has buying a car been an investment? Exactly. You drive it off the lot, it loses half its value. Exactly. In the States. Not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, that said, the pound is, you know, becoming monopoly money, so that's a bit of a problem. That's a bit, that's a bit of a problem, yeah. I mean, we're not in Venezuelan territory. That That's that's a it's a much more extreme yes. uh, problem. But... The, but um, but the currency's value is in decline. Um, there's a the capital controls have made it so that people are um, having to turn to the black market to buy dollars in order to be able to import goods. Um, and so uh, you have like a 20, 25 percent gap between the official bank rate and what people actually pay to get dollars if they want them. Yeah. And it's increasingly difficult to get those dollars. So uh, you used to be able to get a certain amount of money if you showed an airplane ticket at the uh, bank. And then you'd be able to use your ATM card up to a certain amount of money. And now they've been uh, cutting back on the amount that you can take when you show your ticket. And they're also, there's been uh, reports that they're they're banning you from using your ATMs abroad. And then the central bank now has come back and said, no, that's not really true. It's up to the bank. But I know a number of people personally who, upon that announcement, ceased to be able to use their, their ATM cards. So clearly there's something happening. And if that becomes official policy, then it's borderline impossible to finance travel legally. You would have to go to the black market. That's crazy. And at the same time, they're saying that they want, they were talking about prison terms for, as, a, as a punishment for uh, people trading in the black market. Um, they haven't, I don't, think, I don't believe that bill has passed as of yet, but it, it is something that is under discussion. Um, but you need the black market because you need liquidity in the market. Without the liquidity, uh, a huge section of the economy built on imports collapses and all the jobs that go with it. Yeah. At the same time, they cannot afford our import bill. Yeah. So they're in a really difficult situation economically, uh, and the government spending has not been exactly responsible. Um, we've bought things we don't need with hard currency we don't have, uh, and we could have used those funds to shore up our, our financial position and our monetary policy position, and we didn't. Um, and those purchases don't create jobs. Buying, uh, buying a Mistral class uh, naval ship from France is not creating any jobs in Egypt. Uh, buying Rafale jets doesn't create jobs. So and these are huge outlays. These are huge purchases. So I mean, look, it, this sounds to me like a status quo that is that is not sustainable in the medium to long run. Like something has to give. So you know, try and put your your. Uh, I mean, you are an analyst, so you can't say put your analyst hat on. Like, look into your crystal ball, look into your magic eight ball, and and, and tell me where you see Egypt five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. Like, how does this all shake out? I don't know. I'm not a big fan of do making predictions. Me uh, neither, which is why I like asking the question. <laughs> you're in the you're in the safe position. Uh, <clears throat> I would say, look, I would say uh, that I agree with you that the current. The current situation is not sustainable, uh, particularly the economic situation. People, the, the, the repression is more complicated because people are exhausted. Uh, they, in, in the view of the average Egyptian, they've had two uprisings or two revolutions, depending on what word you want to use. Um, and after each one, their situation has gotten worse. Yeah. Their day-to-day -day situation has deteriorated. So their confidence and their faith that a third would improve that situation is quite limited. That is the one thing going for the government on that front. Um, that said, the economic situation is increasingly unbearable. The government is aware of that. The military has been selling subsidized meat in poor areas to just kind of like try to keep people 
you know, a little bit happier. Uh, there's there's concern about, you know, the increasing costs resulting in instability. Uh, so that's one thing. But um, I think the government is hoping for two things. The ho government is hoping that these big gas fields that they've discovered recently will come online and kind of save the government in terms of hard currency. Uh, and the other thing that they're hoping for is that tourism will come back. But increasingly, that's not sh looking like it's going to happen anytime in the near future. Because yeah. um, what used to happen, what because Egypt's had a trade deficit for a very long time. We've always imported more than we produce that or exported. Uh, that's been an issue for a very long time. But we used to plug the gap was a couple of things. Tourism was one, brought in a lot of hard currency. Yeah. Um, canal revenue. Uh, from the Suez Canal, which is a down at the moment. Tourism is obviously down at the moment. Uh, to, a, to, to an extent, foreign direct investment, but that's never been huge, frankly. Uh, and it certainly hasn't been the last few years. Uh, and then finally, remittances. Yeah. Egyptians working abroad sending money home. And actually, that's a big one. That's bigger than tourism and FDI combined. Wow. It's worth close to $19 billion at the moment, which is less than its peak because the the – the drop in oil revenue for the Gulf has resulted in layoffs and stuff like that. Right. But it's still, you know, substantial. But 90% of that, according to the former central bank governor, is going into the black market, not the banking sector. 90%. So instead of getting $19 billion into your banks, you're getting two. Yeah. And the other 17 are going to the black market. And that's that $19 billion would go a long way to closing the, the, de the gap in the trade deficit. Yes, it would. Um... So that's a big problem. I mean, there's so that that's among the others. I mean, so the 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 traditional resources that existed for for addressing this challenge are are not currently available, and the government hasn't figured out a good way to bring them back. Um, the gas fields might be a lifeline uh, if they come online in 2017, as as some people hope. Um, but in the meantime, they're just borrowing a lot of money, and they're getting low interest loans from the Gulf, and so they're not. It's not. It's not the uh, debt catastrophe it could be right now. Yeah. But the thing about Gulf largesse is it tends to be temporary. Yeah, and they, conditional. They pledge a lot, and they don't always deliver. Yeah. And they, and they might deliver it for a few years, but you don't have a lot of situations in which they're delivering for decades. Uh, so at some point, the Egyptians are going to have to find uh, a more sustainable solution to these problems. Uh, also, politically, I mean... There's a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, division within the government, within the regime, um, and it's creating problems. I mean, something as simple as importing wheat. Egypt is one of the world's, I think it is the world's largest importer of wheat. Uh, and we've been doing it for decades. We know how to do it. Um, and you'd think, given that we're the largest importer, that with economies of scale, we'd be getting a good deal. But... Because different government institutions disagree right now on the amount of argo that can be found in the wheat, which is a type of uh, fungus, um, we've been sending shipments back. Because So one agency is saying that it's fine to have, I believe it's 0.5%, which is kind of the global standard Europe accepts, we accept, everybody accepts. Uh, and another institution is saying, no, it has to be 0%, which is basically, from what I understand uh, from other experts, impossible. <laughs> yeah, we want to make the impossible possible. So yeah, well you know, <laughs> you can't you can't you can't challenge them for the low expectations. There um, you go. <laughs> so, but the problem with that is there the shipping wheat to Egypt is now a risky business because there is a real possibility that they will send it back. Yeah. So 
what do what do wheat traders do? They raise their prices to cover the risk. Yeah. So Egypt is now paying a premium for its for an essential good that feeds the population due to sheer institutional incompetence. There's no other reason why we're paying extra. We're just paying an extra extra because the government cannot coordinate. That's tragic. Uh, and we don't have extra. That's the thing. We're not in the We don't have the luxury to let that happen. <laughs> yeah. And this is an area where there's just zero justification for this problem. There's the, there's no like scientific evidence that supports the idea that this is actually a concern. There's no, there's nothing to defend this this absurdity. And this is just one example of a series of incompetent decisions that are being made and inefficiencies in the government. And you get tension between the different institutions of power and you just, it's not manageable. Yeah. Um, and people have this, this delusional picture where Sisi is the all powerful dictator of Egypt and controls everything. It's nonsense. He doesn't. There are so many different centers of power within the regime from the judiciary to the interior ministry, to the intelligence services, to the army, which is somewhat tied to Sisi, but not entirely subject, subject to him. Um, all these institutions have their own interests in self-promotion and since these uprisings have taken place the rules of the game are are up for being redefined and all of them are trying to redefine those rules in their favor sounds like what you guys need is a supreme leader <laughs> supreme <laughs> oh, i say that in jest because everything that you just described 100 percent applies to iran and like people oftentimes talk about the supreme leader as you know the end-all be-all and, and, and he's he's the top guy but there's just like in Egypt, there's all these other actors, institutions, interest groups, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, cause things to be far worse than they actually should be and cause decision-making to be far more ineffective than it actually should be. And then, of course, it's the average Joe or, in the case of Egypt and Iran, the average Ali that ends up suffering as a result. And that's, that's tragic. We call him Ali. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's tragic. And so, all right, here we have a situation where a country like Egypt, which has long been considered a regional power, like one of three or four, right? You have the Iranians, you have the Saudis, you have the Egyptians, and depending on who you talk to, you have the Turks, right? Who just by default are regional power. It's not like Israel where they've been manufactured into a regional power. They've been subsidized into a regional power, right? Um, fundamentally different in my view. I would say that you can't really say the same thing about Egypt at this point in time in terms of uh, its ability to be a regional power, not because of any kind of demographic shift, but just because when you have everything that's happened over the past five years, your attention is almost entirely focused inward. Yeah. Like your power projection capabilities aren't what they were. And it's not to say that it can't get back to where it was before, but for all intents and purposes, we're essentially talking about a two-man show at this point in time, for at least the short to medium term. You're talking about the Iranians and you're talking about the Saudis. So my question to you is, uh, with Egypt playing a less prominent role on the regional stage, for at least the foreseeable future, not indefinitely, because I do think, again, for entirely natural reasons, Egypt will reassume its rightful place as one of a handful of regional powers. But until that day comes, what does it portend for regional security, in your view, when you have two countries who, Iran and Saudi Arabia, that aren't really playing nice with one another? So there's no third or fourth country to balance. Yeah, I mean, the, the current situation in the region between Iran and Saudi Arabia is really scary, frankly. Yeah. You have, uh, you have two countries that have been be taking on very aggressive foreign policies uh, in competition with one another. And so where 
their competition uh, a little bit further back was more behind the scenes, trying to buy off certain people, support certain groups. It was more, uh, it was, it was the earlier stages of a chess game before you really start killing pieces. Uh, yeah, before you just flip the chessboard over. <laughs> right, but right now the chessboard has been very much flipped, and there's just this gross violence that has become a centerpiece of their competition, uh, and it's horribly destabilizing. Um, and and the, the dark underbelly of that violence is there, there has been a, a subsidizing and support of a lot of sectarian actors in the region, which really kind of poisons uh, society throughout the Middle East. Absolutely. And this sectarianism is a very difficult thing to roll back. So they've kind of created a Frankenstein. Because the reality is that the Iranians and the Saudis in different times in their history have been able to work with other sects without issue if it's in their interest. 100%. But they both have fallen into this position right now where they're clearly backing sectarian actors. Yeah. Which promotes this divisiveness. And while states can, you know can play that game and then turn around and say, well, we don't need to do that anymore and move on, populations aren't so quick to make that transition. And exactly. so the scary thing is, how long will it take to reverse that damage? And that's what I really worry about. Because, I mean, you've got it tearing apart Iraq, tearing apart Saudi Arabia, to an ex tearing apart Yemen, for example. Um, and, uh, and then you've got uh, you've got a whole, uh, whole mess on the border with Turkey. Um, uh, and all of these things are creating a dynamic in which it seems like the region will have a lot of trouble stabilizing any time in the near future. Um, and so they will, I mean, if, you know, whoever emerges victorious, if there's a victory to be had, will be presiding over uh, something you would have no desire to possess, frankly. Yeah. Um, and this destabilization is, I mean, it's a, it's, it comes home to roost. I mean, you see the attacks in Saudi Arabia that uh, just took place in Turkey that have been taking place for the past year or two. Um, and it's only a matter of time before more countries face that in the region. Uh, these things yeah. spread. Um, and of course, Iran and Syria, it's tragic to what extent they've been devastated by this sort of violence. Um, and everyone just kind of backing their own horse against yes. one another. Um, and uh, and it's not just the Saudis and the Iranians. Though. I mean, the Qataris are backing a bunch of different militias. The Kuwaitis are in there uh, to some extent. Um, and and then in Libya, you've got a whole other mess that people aren't even paying attention to. That's the thing that the Egyptians worry about the most, actually. I mean, their, their main external concern has nothing to do with what's east of them and everything to do with Libya. Yeah. If, if you want to talk about the military of Egypt's main priority outside of Egypt, it is to get the situation in Libya under control. You have a large ISIS presence there. It's basically a failed state. It's not basically. It is a failed state. 100%, 100 a failed state. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a failed state with lots of different militias competing. You've got multiple governments claiming uh, legitimacy. Um, and you've got a massive desert border with Egypt. Yeah. That's porous. And nobody could secure that border. I mean, I was, I, was, uh, I was talking to a Defense Department official, and he's like, we couldn't secure that border. We don't blame them for not being able to secure that border. It's just not physically possible. Yeah. Um, and there's so much weapons that are, tr are moving between uh, both sides on that border that are facilitating uh, attacks in both countries. Um, so that's a huge problem that is really difficult to contain. Um, and so this... And this has been a product of a lot of reckless military interventionism without any kind of planning, without any kind of concern for a more like for for how society puts pieces back together again. Um, 
and it started under the, I mean, to a large extent under the Bush administration uh, with its invasion of Iraq. Um, that's not the only reason this is happening, uh, but it's, it's the biggest. But it's a major reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, ISIS is a product of that. People forget that Iraq is the source of ISIS, not Syria. That's Syria happened. is the Syria was the perfect uh, petri dish for for ISIS. It was the place where they could flourish. But they're actually a combination of of, of militants uh, who were operating in Iraq against uh, the Americans and uh, and Baathist uh, officers and intelligence officials. That's right. And that was a very dangerous cocktail. Um, and today, I mean, the original, uh, however ISIS came to exist, is 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 only tangentially relevant to how it behaves. Uh, I don't I, I don't even think that those entities uh, fully control it anymore. Um, it, it's taken on a life of its own, like all these groups have. Um, and it's funny because when you look at Iraq, when you look at Syria now, like some people look at it and they're like, well, you know, Al-Qaeda doesn't seem that bad in comparison to these guys. It's, it's gotten to that point where yeah. it's that bad a situation that some people kind of like feel a little bit of relief if Nostra takes something. Yeah. <laughs> it's scary. wild to me. It's scary. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the reality is that, I mean, you just have a, and, and the reality is that while we talk about ISIS more than anything else, Assad is still by far the biggest butcher in the country. He's massacred way more people than anybody else by any standard. Um, I mean, the the largest terrorist group in the country is is the Assad regime. Um, so, well, I want to talk about this because we didn't we had now we have a chance to discuss this in person because we we discussed this on I think it was Facebook. Facebook we discussed yeah. it on Facebook. I go back and forth on this, and it actually the podcast that the last one I did before this one with you uh, with my friend Maryam. So Jams, if you're listening to this, shout out. Um, we were talking about the issue of terrorism, and I said, actually, I was having this conversation with my Egyptian friend. And on the one hand, I hear what you're saying, because nobody's denying the crimes against humanity, right? Like, it's pretty... Well, it's impossible. Pretty, yeah, it's pretty plain to see at this point, right? But then I, I go back into State Department mode in my, from my previous life, and I remember the conversations of, of, of what went in to deciding, like, who went on the list of, of state sponsors of terrorism versus who didn't. And, and, and it was just it was completely politicized. Like, oh, no. The definition of terrorism, as far as any state is concerned, is entirely politicized. My definition is, for, frankly, very straightforward. It is political violence that targets civilians. Full stop. So while the U.S. definition, for example, talks about non-state actors because the U.S. doesn't want to be implicated in its own definition. Yeah. That's the main reason. <laughs> yeah. And even uh, the former uh, Near East Affairs Director at CIA, Paul Pilar, has written as much in his, uh, in his work on the, on right. the concept of terrorism. Totally. I don't have that kind of – I don't have that concern. I, if the United States engages in, a, in, in an attack that qualifies under my definition of terrorism, then the United States is engaged in terrorism. And that's fine. I can. I don't have a. I don't have a problem saying that. In the in the context of Syria, the cl- the barrel bombs and the uh, the, the torture uh, chambers that so many that capture so many Syrians cannot be called anything other than terrorism. You are terrorizing a civilian population uh, to achieve a political end. I don't disagree with what you've just laid out. Okay. So what do you disagree with? So my disagreement is in how it is operationalized. Um, how the what, what the practical application is versus what you and I are talking about now. What do you mean exactly? So the, the practical application is essentially, well, it's twofold. It's uh, these countries reject Pax Americana and thus, right? Iran, so Saudi Arabia does not reject Pax Americana. 
and thus you'll never see them anywhere close to any list that has to do with But terrorism. Saudi Arabia engages in terrorism as well. Don't misunderstand no, no, me. But so uh, so we don't by disagree. my definition, yeah, yeah. both so, of them would qualify. Of course, but, so, but you asked me a question, I'm answering it, right? Sorry. So in the practical application of how these things typically shake out is different than what you fleshed out. And I would be inclined to agree just with a much more straightforward definition. But then I think you and I also agree that the reason why that straightforward definition and application of it doesn't make it into the practical application of foreign policy and national security projection no. is because then it's self-implication on the part of the United States, and that sucks. Well, there's another reason. Terrorism as a term, generally speaking, is more of a political tool than, an, than, a, than a term that we use to understand something. Right. Right? It's a, it's a pejorative term more than it is uh, an analytical term in a lot of instances. I mean, we could just say illegal political violence, right? Yeah. War crimes would qualify, crimes against humanity would qualify, uh, attacks on civilians, all of that would be illegal political violence. Uh, the term has, but the term, I deal with, I, I look at it from two different possible perspectives. One, I'm totally comfortable with erasing the term terrorism from our vernacular. Oh, me too. I find it not analytically useful. Right. But so long as it is a term that is getting so much currency and so much use, I want to generalize its application to everybody who truly falls under its definition, which means including the United States when it engages acts of terrorism and Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia. You have to do one or the other for me. It has to be consistent. Absolutely, people are using it to target people they want, that reject their political perspective, and then they won't apply it to people who they like or sympathize with for whatever reason. Yeah. That is 100% true. That's not how I use it. Oh, you're so, a purist. I like it. <laughs> I am, I'm very selfie about this. I'm a, <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a fundamentalist. Just, uh, just, ki just kidding, NSA. We're just, just kidding. kidding. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm leaving soon. Uh, <laughs> you think you're leaving. <laughs> you get to the airport, maybe not so much. But you got the American passport, so you're okay. Why couldn't Obama close Gitmo? <laughs> oh, God, don't get me started. Anyways, started. so my point is I 100% agree that the way the U.S. uses the term is biased and selective and not analytically useful. Right. I don't disagree with you at all about that. But when I come to use that term, I, I think it's important to understand that I'm trying to use it as consistently as possible. And I only use it because we're forced to deal with the fact that terrorism is a fundamental part of the discourse on political violence in the world today. Yeah. And so refusing to use the term ever may be a principled academic position, but in the policy world, it's just not practical. And so I use it, but I force people to recognize that it's not just the people they dislike who are engaging in these types of practices. And I think also another thing is really important is to understand terrorism as a practice as opposed to an identity. This is a really fundamental issue for me. Flesh that out. I've never heard that before. This idea, basically, terrorism is a is a is a is a tactic to achieve political ends. It is a it is a tactic that should be condemned, but is a tactic and not an identity. There are many many groups, organizations, countries that have engaged in terrorism at different points in time because they saw it as necessary. But then, to identify them as an entity as terroristic creates a, a dynamic in which you cannot deal with that entity. There's this idea that you can't negotiate with terrorists, for example. But in reality, all of these groups, or most of these groups, there are exceptions, or some people are crazy, but <laughs> a lot of these groups are making these decisions for relatively rational reasons. They might be problematic reasons, they might, they, they're not justifiable reasons, but they're not, they're not doing it randomly. 
the, the, the selection of the type of violence that they engage in, they believe is the most effective given the resources, given the situation. And the United States has been among those places. Uh, I, from my perspective, uh, the firebombing of Tokyo, the use of nuclear uh, bombs in Japan were acts of terrorism. We targeted civilian populations to achieve a political objective. There's no other way to describe that for me. Um, is the United States a terrorist nation? I wouldn't define the very being of this country as a terrorist nation. I would say that it has, at times, in its use of violence, engaged in acts of terrorism and as a tactic. But that doesn't mean the Japanese could not negotiate with the Americans and could not make a deal and could not eventually become allies, as they did. Uh, and that's true of Hezbollah and Israel being able to negotiate deals uh, as well. Uh, it's true of even Hamas being able, to, at times, to talk to Israeli officials. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, when Hamas got elected uh, to the majority of parliament uh, in, in Palestine uh, back in, I think it was 2006, um, one of the things they said is you don't make peace with your allies, you make peace with your enemies. So, yes, has there been a history of violence in which both sides have, have killed civilians knowingly? Absolutely. Uh, does that mean that it's impossible for them to talk to each other forever and ever and ever because you can't negotiate with terrorists? No. That would put the world in a perpetual state of violence always. Exactly. Uh, it's a very impractical perspective. Also, from a strategic perspective, when you say I'm declaring war on terrorism, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard of. <laughs> Have we won? No, I'm pretty sure we didn't win. You can't win a war on terrorism because exactly. somebody somewhere will eventually use that that tactic to achieve their objective. Um, you declare war on a specific target. So you want to declare war on Al Qaeda? Declare war on Al Qaeda. You want to declare war on Daesh or ISIS? Declare war on them. Do not create this general perennial, unendable conflict that you call a war on terrorism. Yeah. It is, it is, <clears throat> it is the, it is the ultimate manifestation of, of, uh, of an aimless conflict. It is the ultimate manifestation of a conflict that cannot be won. Yeah. It's like the war on drugs because you can't just go out and yeah. buy any type of drug you could possibly want within 30 minutes in New York City just calling up some random phone numbers it, 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 the whole the whole premise is absurd right it's like it's like declaring war on flanking positions it doesn't make any <laughs> you don't declare war on a military strategy or a violence tactic or a particular weapon yeah. you declare war on a target yeah you have an objective and hopefully a beginning middle and an end we don't have ends. This is the postmodern world. That's right. Define end. You're, this whole conversation about structural outcomes is just really very passe, I think. Yeah, yes. These are complicated questions. That Besides, there's no money in an end. No. There's, there's money I'm, in treatment, not in the cure. And let's not pretend like this isn't about money to some extent. I fully agree that it's about money. Look, I live in a city where there's an extremely high number of wealthy people yet most of those people aren't doctors, lawyers, and engineers. So where's that money coming from? Well, there are a lot of lawyers with a lot of money. <laughs> there are, but not, that's not the majority of the people. It's not the majority of the people. And, and Loudoun County is one of the most, if not the most, wealthiest county in the United States. How is that possible? Where is all this money coming from? I think the question is, why are we working here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of my best friends, he lives in London. And he was, he's worked for a couple of oil companies and, and so on and so forth. R R smart guy. And as one does. As one does. And I, and, and I told him, I was like, no, I need to you know, believe in, in what I do. I need to, it's not fun if I don't. You know, my heart has to be into it, so on and so forth. And he was like, no, I totally understand that. He's just like me. I personally prefer to make my money. And then after I make my money, then I can do whatever I want. That my heart's really in. And, yeah. You know, fast forward 10 years and I'm like. Hmm. He's still making his money. 
I mean, well, he, he's done. Yes, he's still making money. He's not working at the oil company anymore. But, you know, he made his money working at the oil company. And Is he doing what he wanted to do passion-wise? I think so now, yeah. Okay, because I have a lot of friends who have said that and just never been able to extricate themselves. They're typically lawyers because they're so far in This guy was a banker, they, but... Oh, well, that, that, I mean, now you're talking about like millions of dollars in salary a year probably if you're a banker, right? Uh, I don't know if he made that much. He was doing well. Um, well, we, well, we like that. And he wanted to be a professor of philosophy. And oh, okay, I support banker over professor of philosophy. <laughs> it's this sort of cynicism that brought us to the point that we're at, Teresa. It is. Well, look, I am... Uh, I, I think teaching people th thinking skills is pretty valuable. It is. Uh, well, look, um, I, I think I just... There's certain philosophers that... Uh, like I tried reading Derrida and I just didn't get it. I'm not ashamed to admit that. He's pretty difficult. Yeah, I I remember rereading re multiple pages multiple times. I, was, what? I, I I don't I don't follow. Well, in a different podcast, I can introduce you to postmodernism in a more ex uh, accessible way than Derrida. If anybody could make postmodernism accessible, Tim called us. I believe in you. But we might have to do it off of the NIAC platform so that we can uh, use uh, more flowery language. Yeah. Well, you know, we try to keep it PG for the children. Um, because I, I lots of children about, listen to podcasts from uh, from think tanks. So. I'm all about the children. It's and, very important. Uh, and by that, that I mean my boss will reprimand me if I if I use the language I typically use when I speak like a normal human being. But uh, before I let you go, because um, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, I'm looking at my, I always have one sheet of paper with like four or five bullet points in case I can't think of of, of stuff to ask. But normally I like the conversation to be more organic and more fluid. When, not surprisingly, that's exactly what happened here. Um, minus the F-bombs. Which is unfortunate, because people should really hear us talk how we normally talk, and I think they would enjoy it. Is, it is it. an experience. Yeah, but uh, I always like to give my guests an opportunity to, you know, plug whatever they want to plug before we wrap things up. So, you know, uh, Tim's on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, T-E-K-A-L-D-A-S. Check him out on Twitter. And uh, he also writes, uh, works for the Tahrir Institute for... Middle East Policy. Middle East Policy. TimeUp.org. TimeUp.org. Check him out there. Uh, extremely thoughtful guy, and I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. Or because um, I'm sitting in front of you right now, it'd be awkward. Well, they just have listened to us talk for an hour, so they know how smart you are now. So or the opposite. It depends how they've assessed the uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, so besides, uh, besides Twitter and besides, uh, uh, besides the Tahrir Institute, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, no, uh, that's, that's pretty much... That's pretty much it? Yeah, that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it. I, I would encourage people, uh, we've been talking about like all these things in terms of the chessboard of politics, but I would encourage people on the human side of things to try to contribute to uh, organizations working with refugees, um, helping yeah. them get food, get resettled. Uh, it's, a, it's a hugely tragic situation. Um, and the people involved are overwhelmed and under-resourced. Uh, so whether it be uh, UNHCR or the Red Cross or Médicins Sans Frontières, they're doing amazing work. Uh, definitely support them. And they're very principled, uh, unlike a lot of other groups that are dealing in this field. Uh, actually, I particularly would suggest uh, contributing to Médicins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. For the non-French, for the non-Francophiles, <laughs> exactly. For the unsophisticated. That's right, um, and you know, respect to you for saying that because uh, we definitely have an unprecedented 
refugee. I don't like calling them migrants, by the way. No, no. I think that's messed up. It's, uh, it's, it's dishonest. Yeah, and, and it's happening far too frequently, I think, in the mainstream media now where you're calling them migrants. People aren't migrating. No, this idea that like this is some sort of like voluntary, you know, d- casual decision to make a better salary is kind of ridiculously absurd and insulting. Like the idea that somebody's going to risk their baby's life in a raft because they'd rather make you know a better paycheck um, in a different country is really untenable. And I mean, if anyone has any, like, sees these people as remotely human, they would understand that they would never just put their kids at risk in that way uh, for for some material gain. They're doing it out of desperation. They're doing it because they're escaping a situation in which they they risk torture, they risk death, uh, they risk complete destitution um, to the point where they can't feed their children, and in some cases, children are being forced into very, very uh, disturbing uh, areas of labor, including even the sex trade. And it's uh, it's a huge tragedy, and that's why people are taking these risks. Um, and it's important to understand that and sympathize and help those people. One hundred percent. And uh, you know, it's 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 this is a modern day trail of tears, and it's not getting the attention that it deserves. And uh, Western governments who Un- who, who, who always talk about not just interests but also values. Like these are our values. These are Western values. Um, Western governments are failing miserably. Absolutely, and I think that the the thing is, at the end of the day, this conversation about values stops when it costs money. Um, and it we I, I've there's a really disturbing trend globally right now where human rights have become a tool of trolling one another as opposed to actually solving problems. And, I agree. Uh, and you see it all over the place. The United States will criticize some countries for oppressing protests and then fund other countries that are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, you saw it uh, when they were condemning uh, the repression of protests uh, <coughs> in uh, in Yemen while they were throwing arms to the Bahrainis uh, while they were doing while they were oppressing their protesters and even yeah. torturing uh, doctors. Um, it's 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 just it's really disturbing um and and the and the gulf will do it back to us and and the the issue is human rights shouldn't be a toy that we play with it's it shouldn't be this thing that we you know uh, that we use to score media points it should be actually a set of principles that drives our practices and it's unfortunately not the case yeah and and when it, when it becomes politicized like you just described it cheapens the concept and it weakens the cause absolutely and yeah. and it gives governments who who regularly ignore human rights a justification for doing so they say see they don't really mean it look what they look who they support in this case and look who they support in that case and it's just a game for them and it also it also compromises the safety of people working in the field of human rights who get cast as these sort of agents of governments as opposed to principled people trying to expose abuse that's right no, I completely agree. I, I completely agree. So, on that happy note. <laughs> it's uplifting, isn't it? <laughs> on, that uplifting on, on that happy note, we're going to go get burritos. Yeah, we're going to go get burritos. Burrito time with Tim and Reza. Um, thank you. Totally different podcast. Very much. Totally different. Much more interesting podcast. Uh, delicious uh, podcast. Delicious, delicious podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, much respect to you for doing this. And oh, Happy uh, to. You know, you come back to the States every once in a while, so we'll do this again. Absolutely. You're going to be one of the handful of people I allow to be a repeat guest. That's exciting. Yeah, and then now we're going to have to find a whole new set of stuff to talk about because we can't just talk about the same thing. Absolutely. Can't wait. Burritos. Habibi. Habibi. Shukran. Afwan.